0: as we go into God's Word together every week but if you are a member of another church we don't want this to be in any way shape form or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body so our prayer is is that God uses his word to change you and to change others so we pray that God will use you and this message for his glory have a great day take your copy of God's Word and turn to first Peter chapter 4 First Peter chapter four, and if this is your first time worshiping with us, uh, in the pew back in front of you is a little card, a connection card. If you would take some time, fill it out, uh, and turn it into one of our offering boxes or next steps areas, that would be a blessing to us. First Peter chapter four, and we're going to ver- begin in verse number seven. Let's stand again as we read God's word. First Peter chapter four, verse seven. <clears throat> The Holy Spirit says through Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. ever. Amen. You may be seated. I've got a question I want to ask you. Uh, How many of you want to make a difference in the world? I wanna make a difference in the world. I'm convinced that the older that I get, the more I want to make a difference in the world around me. There was a recent study that, uh, that surveyed thousands of high school students uh, all around the country, and they, the survey asked them what are the top three things that they wanted for their future. Uh, 18% said that they wanted to achieve fame or public recognition. 25% said that they wanted to work in a high-paying job. wanted to own a large home, uh, which is very difficult here in Naples. (laughs) 77% said having a clear purpose for living. 82% said that they wanted to, this is high school uh, students, they wanted to have one marriage partner for life. 82%. 84% said that they wanted to have close personal friends. 88% said that they wanted to have a college degree. But 96% of those high school students from around the country, 96% said they wanted to make a difference in the world. You know, most people, regardless of their age, want to know their purpose in life and if they are fulfilling it or not. I mean, how excited would you be if I could tell you your purpose for life and how you can make a difference? I mean, imagine if I had an envelope with your name on it, signed by Jesus, notarized by the archangel Gabriel, and in that envelope had a specialized, specific role that you're supposed to play in life that would make a difference in the world. How many of you would want that? And how many, million, how many many people would be lined up for miles to come and get an envelope like that? Well, Peter here is encouraging these new believers uh, who are suffering and sojourning as a small minority of Christians in Asia Minor. Uh, he's teaching as an old man. He's an old apostle. And he's teaching us and them what it meant to follow Jesus and how to make a difference as an exile in the world, Peter is going to tell us how we can make a difference in the world around us. And here's what we're going to learn in the message this morning, and that's this We are called not to just live different than the world, but we are called to make a difference in the world around us through our prayer and through our care, not just to be different but to make a difference. Last week, we talked about what it meant to be different. This week, we're gonna talk about how it means how we can make a difference. And Peter tells us it's through our prayer and through our care. So number one, you can make a difference through your prayer. Verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. It's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, What does he mean, the end of all things? Well, it's the end of time when our living hope becomes a lasting reality. This is the eschatological longing for that day in which we will receive that imperishable inheritance. He says here that the end of all things is at hand. That is, it's within Reach. Now, you say, well, Peter was writing this almost 2,000 years ago. He's saying that the end of all time is at hand. Well, 2,000 years has elapsed. What's going on? What, what does he mean by this? Well, well, let's just think of it big picture. Number one, God doesn't live in time and space like you and I live in time and space. God lives in the, uh, in the always ever present. He lives in, in, in a sense of above time, but yet he can live in time. But he is ultimately in the eternal present. But but not with just that. Let's just think about a, a redemption history. As you look from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets all the way to that little town of Bethlehem where Jesus would be born, live a perfect life, die on the cross, raised from the dead. The Spirit would fill the church, and the church would be sent out to the nations. The last mark, the last thing in redemptive history before the restoration of all things is the second coming of Christ. There's nothing that is keeping Christ from returning. And so Peter is saying here that the second coming of Christ is nearer today than it was yesterday. Peter is not some deranged man with a sign saying the end is near, but, but what he's doing is he is calling believers to live with the end in view. He wants us to live with the end in mind. And, and so the question that I kinda I thought this week is, if I knew I was gonna die or Christ was gonna return in 24 hours, would it change how I live my life today? You know, C.S. Lewis said that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot, on, who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. He says here, the end of all things is at hand. And now he says, in light of that, be sober-minded, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded. This word sober-minded is literally to be in your right mind. To to be clear-headed. Uh, this is a word that, that, that actually Mark will use in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 5, verse 15, when Jesus healed a man who was demon-possessed, uh, who was foaming at the mouth, uh, cutting himself, running around with no clothes on, and yet Jesus uh, took the demon out. And the Bible says that this man was clothed and in his right mind. That's what it means to be sober-minded. Self-control means to keep your head, to pay attention. Listen, it is easy to lose our mental sobriety and to lose control. And if we are not consciously sober and alert, we will be careless and flippant, flippantly sucked into the triviality of our society. You know, uh, last week there were some days, you ever had a bad day? Any of you? Maybe it's just me, I don't know. Maybe you all just live in Naples and your best life now, I don't know. But I kind of had a bad day, and nothing went right, and everything that I kind of hoped for just kind of fell apart, and, you know, and and so I kind of went to bed in not so great of a mood. Anybody else ever done that? And I woke up in the morning convicted, because I was thinking of these verses of Scripture. And so in my mind, I, I was, I, I kind of had this thought that, that said this, that every day, we are tempted to focus our attention on things that do not matter for eternity. You know, there are times that you get stressed out, there are times that you get mentally fatigued, and the question that you need to ask yourself is this, when these things that are focusing and sucking your attention, here's the question you should ask, in 10,000 years, will these things that I am worrying about and stressing over matter? There's so many things that are vying for our attention that don't ultimately matter. You know, there's a daily war for your attention. In our ADD, ADHD society, there are many things that want to grab your attention. Big business, social media, they're all working hard to capture our attention so that they can get our money and get our devotion. Right now, uh, Alexa and Siri are listening to everything you say and do. Even right now, they're listening. I hope they're enjoying the sermon. I mean, it's amazing. Have you ever just been talking about wanting to do something or wanting to buy something and the next thing you know, an ad for that thing pops up on your phone? Do you think it's a coincidence? I think not. There are sophisticated algorithms that are caused, uh, that that they have been using for a long time to get you to buy things and to do things. And and the reality is that our usage of technology has done irreparable damage to our brains and our ability to pay attention. Studies have shown, scientific studies have shown that goldfish have a greater attention span than you and I do. You know, yesterday I took my boys fishing and I was sitting there, had this thought in my mind and I was thinking, those fish in the pond have a greater attention span than the boys trying to catch them. Let that one sink in. See, our addiction to social media and mass media is no accident. Tim Wu, in his book, Attention Merchants, says this, that when the online service is free, You're not the customer, you're the product. It's your attention that they're after. As William James observed, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or default. We are at risk without quite fully realizing it of living lives that are less our own than we imagine. I mean, think about this. We buy things we do not need. We look at things that are a waste of time. I mean, have you ever just scrolled on social media and spent hours looking at foolishness? We think about things, we fixate our minds on things that are not true. Why? Because social media, technology, and big business have captured our attention and we've lost our minds. Peter says we have to be self controlled. We have to be sober minded. The writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he would say this. He says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to that which we heard, lest we drift away from it. We have to keep our minds focused on what matters 10,000 years from now. Why? For the sake of your prayers. People who lose their minds don't pray, they panic. People whose attention spans our attentions are somewhere else do not pray because prayer is not that important. We have to be aware that the end is near. It's nearer today than it was yesterday and that should prompt us to have an urgent need for prayer. You know, there's a truism that I have in my life. I've been saying this for years, that you and I pray only as much as we believe and feel we need to. Now, why is it that Peter is saying, the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers? Why would he make that command? Why would that be such a big deal? Well, it, it, Peter's life, that was actually a personal, like verse seven is a personal thing because if you if you are aware of Peter's story at all, one of the most shameful, painful moments in Peter's life outside of his denial of Christ was when Jesus gave he. James and John, an exclusive invitation to a prayer meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're familiar with this story, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane right on the very eve of his betrayal, the very night of his betrayal. And Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to do one thing, to watch and pray with him. Jesus, removed from them about a stone's throw, is in agony praying to the Father. He's got sweat and blood mingled together in such emotional, raw uh, angst because he knew what was coming—the cross. He says, "Listen, you're my closest of closest friends. Would you watch and pray with me?" And when Jesus was done praying, he looks up and he sees Peter, James, and John. And instead of watching and instead of praying, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Jesus wakes them up. A painful moment. They weren't sober-minded and self-control. They were asleep. Just a few moments later, Judas Iscariot and the Roman centurions and and the soldiers come by, and and they're going to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter takes his little knife out, and he cuts off a guy's ear. And it tells you something. He's not a very good guy with his sword because he was aiming for the throat and got the ear He wasn't prepared for the battle. Why? Because he was asleep. He was asleep. Listen, if you want to make a difference in the world, you have to stay awake for the sake of your prayers. The Bible says, Peter says, that you and I are kingdoms of priests. Priests represent the people to God. We have this great ability to be intercessors. And when we pray to God, God through his own sovereignty has ordained that prayer works in such a way that things change. Do you believe prayer changes things? And so we as a kingdom of priests, we don't have to go to a Catholic priest. We don't have to go to a pope. We don't have to go through Mary. We go straight directly to Jesus. And when we come to the throne of grace, we can find mercy and help in time of need. 24 hours, seven days a week. John Wesley said that God does nothing on earth except in the answer to prayer. So that may seem like an overstatement to some of you, but it shows you and I the vital role that prayer plays in our lives. But here's what I got. I understand it. prayer is hard work. I mean, it's extremely hard to keep your attention in prayer. I never think about purple elephants until I start praying. You know, I have these moments. I have them set on my phone that I want to spend time in prayer. And and I even prayer walk the campus every day that I'm here in the office. and, And there's these moments that I spend in time with prayer. And I thank God for things. And I thank God for things. And then my mind begins to wonder. And it begins to go to this issue, this issue, and that issue, and this thought, and that thought. And the next thing you know, I've spent five or ten minutes, I haven't been praying, I've been thinking. See, Satan, the world, and the flesh do not want you to pray because prayer unleashes the power of God. Satan doesn't want this church to pray. He doesn't want you to pray. He doesn't want your family to pray. What does Samuel Chadwick says? He says, Satan fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, or prayerless religion. Satan laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Satan does not want you to pray. And sadly, many of us don't pray because we don't really think in our heart of hearts prayer will make a difference. But here's the, here's the biggest question if God's people do not pray, then who will? If God's people, if, if, if our church, if, if, if we who are believers are not praying for our city, who's going to pray for our city? If you and I want to see God's hand move the needle in lostness in southwest Florida and the nations, it's got to be by us praying. If we won't do it, who will? And so therefore, it's time for God's people to get off their phones and get on their knees in prayer. It is time for us to wake up, show up, and pray up like it matters. R.A. Torrey says that prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. Pray, pray. You know, every day at 2.39 p.m., I get an alert on my watch and my phone that reminds me to pray 10 minutes for area code 239. Been doing this even before I officially became your pastor. 2.39 p.m. every day. Because if we want to see God change the world, we got to be willing to pray for our little world. And I want to encourage you to do that. You want to make a difference? You can make a difference through prayer. Number two, if you want to make a difference, you can make a difference through your care. Verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. could also be translated fervently. That that word fervently or earnestly, the best way to kind of understand what he means there is like an athlete that is stretching with everything they have. So I don't know if you watched some football yesterday or maybe you you watched football recently and and you have a a wide receiver who the ball is kind of overthrown a little bit and they stretch themselves out to catch it. Or that running back who is stretching across the goal line to get the touchdown. That's what he's saying here. He says that we need to extend and exert ourselves in loving other people. Prayer, pardon me, Peter here has emphasized that love is one of the chief characteristics of what it means to be a believer. Love is the best apologetic to an unbelieving world. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. The love that you have for one another. Peter says here that above all, keep loving one another, exerting, extending ourselves. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Karen Job, whose commentary on 1 Peter, comments and she says that it's best, this understanding of covers a multitude of sins is best understood as forbearance that does not let the sins or the wrongs of others come to their fullest expression. And what does that mean? It means that we do not go around looking for faults in others. You know, some people have a, this ability to make a list and check it twice to see who's naughty or nice. If you want to know my faults, just hang out with me for 30 minutes and, and you'll figure out a lot of them. But real love, genuine love, doesn't go around looking for, for faults in other people's. Real love goes around seeking and seeking the best in other people. This, this type of love doesn't spend all of its time lingering on past hurts. This type of love doesn't send nasty emails. Let me just tell you right now, Nasty emails will not change the world. And this type of love thinks before it texts. Before it sends the send button, it thinks it through and asks these questions: "Is this true? Is this helpful and is this kind?" True true love thinks before it says something. True love thinks and, and, and reacts in a way that is a response rather than a reaction when somebody does something that hurts us. He says that when you love others, you cover a multitude of sins. See, we live in a society of contracts, not compassion. Every interaction is a transaction. I love you as long as you meet my needs at a cost that's acceptable to me. But that's not genuine love for other people. It's love with an agenda. But we are called not to love with an agenda. We are called to love with no strings attached. It says in verse nine that we are to show hospitality. Hospitality. The word hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. In the first century, there were no holiday inns and there were no holiday inn expresses. And so believers depended upon each other to to couch surf. Hospitality was not just a convenience, but it was a necessity. So believers needed to open up their homes and open up their hearts and open up their hands to be inconvenienced and to be generous to people that they didn't know. And so Peter says, you want to change the world? Love people, exert yourself, extend yourself in loving people, even if that means that you may be hurt, do it. And then he says, open your home to people you don't know. And he says, do it. Notice here he says, do it without grumbling. Why would Peter say without grumbling? Because most people grumble when people come over. I mean, we, you know when someone comes to your house unannounced, they sit in your seat. They eat all your food, they dirty up your dishes, they clog your toilets. You know, our Western individualism tends to make us isolate from each other. And so because of that, we are grumbling hosts. You know, a few years ago, at my last church, I started a Thursday Bible study, Thursday evening Bible study in my home with about seven to 10 high school, college age Uh, men and young young boys, boys and girls who felt a call into ministry. And these young people felt that God was calling them. So my wife and I, we opened up our home every Thursday night. We cooked them nice, elaborate meals. One of their favorites was homemade chili, grilled cheese sandwiches, and from scratch, yeast cinnamon rolls for the glory of God. Amen. And they, I mean, listen, we would, we would, they would beg for that. It could be 98 degrees outside. Y'all got any chili? I mean, that's what they would say. And so, you know, at the very beginning, because I committed to this, you know, if, if our vision at, at Central, where I was, was to raise up the next generation of church planters, missionaries, world changers, and disciple makers for the glory of God, well, I wanted to be a part of that. And and so I wanted to have people in my homes to use that because uh, one day when I get a house here, I can't wait to open up my home and, and, and use it for the glory of God because everything that we have comes from him anyway. And so, you know, but in the beginning with that, I didn't really want these young people in my house with their stinking shoes on, dirtying up things, eating all my food, dirtying up the dishes, leaving a mess. But guess what happened? God changed my heart, because as I began to see the blessing of what was happening, it was greater than my inconvenience, it was greater than the cost, and it was greater than the clogged toilets. And a lot of these young men are now pursuing ministry. Some of them are serving in churches, and some of them are pursuing to be missionaries that will be the tip of the spear to reach the nations for Christ. It's worth it. You wanna make a difference? Love other people. You want to make a difference, open up your home. Number three, you want to make a difference, use your gifts. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, we get our word charismatic, charismata is the word there. It's a grace gift. All believers have received at least one spiritual gift. Everyone in this room, if you are a Christian, has a spiritual gift that God has given you. Not to hoard, not to hide, but to use. We are to be stewards of God's very grace. This word steward is a manager. That is, we are dispensers of someone else's resources. So as God has given you this gift, it's not just been for you and your own enjoyment, but is meant to be dispensed and used for other people, that you are a recipient of God's very grace, his polka dotted grace, that God's grace has come into your life in different shapes, different sizes, different colors uh, for different times and different needs. And so Peter here is not so much concerned about specific gifts as much as he's concerned about God's grace taking various forms. And what does this mean? That God has gifted his church, his people to be a conduit of his grace In serving others. God wants you as Tony Evans says. To be a conduit not a cul-de-sac. You want to know why the Dead Sea is dead? I've been there many times. I'm going to be going again. If you want to come with me sometime in August of 2022. You know why the Dead Sea is dead? Because it receives and never gives. It takes all the water. But that water goes nowhere. It receives and never gives. Many Christians are like that. They're Dead Seas. They take. They never give. We are a conduit. We have received God's grace, and that should motivate us to share God's grace. God, by his grace, sought us, bought us, brought us into his kingdom. He has graciously given us gifts, abilities, resources, and talents that we do not deserve to bless other people. You are blessed to be a blessing. Every week, every weekend, we are blessed by someone else's service. I mean, some of you, and I know that the 11 o'clock service is a late-arriving crowd, so I think we're going to start changing the time to 10.45. As a matter of fact, starting next week, our service is now 10.45 in the morning. That way you'll get here at 11. All right, anyway. <laughs> but I know some of you, you get here late, and you leave early, and, and sometimes you think, this just magically all showed up. No. They were people that got here hours before you, opened the place up, made sure things are on. You have people that serve in our children's and our preschool halls and people that work in the audio, video, lighting, the worship team, the musicians, all these people, small group leaders, all the way to the preacher, every one of them are serving, serving. You know something else I love about our 11 o'clock crowd? Our 11 o'clock service is our fastest growing service. Do you understand that? Percentage-wise, we have grown more in this service than any other service we have, and all the other services are getting packed. God's doing some great things, and you know what that means? We need your help. You have a great opportunity. If you are not serving currently at this church, you have a great opportunity to serve. We need your help in kids' ministry, in student ministry. We need your help in the greeting ministry. As a matter of fact, this Wednesday at 6.30, I've got a deal for you. You can get a free meal and learn how you can serve Jesus. For free. But you can sign up and do that. Go to the next steps there. We'd love to have you. There is a place for you. Here's what I want you to understand. And I know that some of these have been maybe repetitive themes if you've been coming here, but that's just kind of what Peter does. Peter's a Baptist preacher. He just keeps saying the same stuff over and over and over again. But here's what you got to get. This church is not a cruise ship. I'm not the captain of the good ship Lollipop. This is a battleship, brother. And it's all hands on deck. And look, I'm not saying that to guilt you. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm just saying, look, what a great opportunity. You want to make a difference in the world? Serve other people. You'll never find anybody who's ever truly made a remarkable difference in the world that didn't serve other people. You may ask, all right, Pastor, well, then what's my gift? How am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do if I don't know what my gift is? Now, many of you know your Enneagram. I'm a three. Probably didn't shock any of you. Myers-Briggs, you know your personality profiles. How many of you know your spiritual gifts? we want to help you. And as you start a process of membership here and as we have other opportunities in serving, we're going to help you learn what your spiritual gift is. My spiritual gifts, I believe over years, I've pray, prayerfully thought through but I think my spiritual gifts is, is faith, evangelism, prophecy, and leadership. Tim Keller uh, says that the way that you can find your calling and giftedness is a convergence of three factors in your life, affinity, ability, and affirmation. Affinity is looking out, and these are the things that I like to do. These are the things that, that, uh, uh, that are, are needs that I feel like I can help in. And so maybe that's kids' ministry. Maybe you're like, no, there's no way. God didn't call me. I have no desire to help in children's ministry. Maybe it's some other ministry. Maybe it's golf cart ministry, okay? Who wouldn't want to be in a golf cart ministry? I mean, all you do is serving Jesus is driving a golf cart for the glory of God. I mean, there's worse things in life, Right? But what is it that you like to do? What is something that moves you? That's affinity. And then ability. What are your abilities? What are your deficiencies? I mean, if you don't know how to smile, we shouldn't put you in guest services. We should maybe put you back in the audio video booth where nobody can see you. <laughs> An affirmation, look up. What are, what, is, what, what are others saying about you? That Man, you would be good at this. Man, you would be good at that. That's where, if you want to find your gifts, what are those uh, affinities? What are those things that you are attracted to? Abilities, what are those things that you can do? And then affirmation, what are people saying about you that that can affirm you that you should be doing these things? And those, uh, how you can find your gift on the very surface level is the convergence of those three things. So I want you to imagine a guy named Bob. And, And there are some things that Bob wanted to do, but he didn't have the opportunity to do. There's some things that Bob was asked to do, but he didn't have the ability to do. And sometimes churches do that, They're just looking for warm bodies, and so they'll ask you to serve in a place that you have no reason or ability to do, okay? Like some of you, if you cannot carry a tune in a bucket, you shouldn't be in the worship team. You shouldn't, okay? There are some things that Bob could do, but he didn't really feel called to do. But that sweet spot in ministry is finding where all those three things come together. And some of you, here's the thing, in a church our size, as big as it is, you say, man, I don't know how, how can I serve What can I do? I don't even know the opportunities. Again, go to our Next Steps area. Talk to one of our pastors or people that are there. They would love to get your information and help you find where your faith journey is and where your giftedness is. But here's what he says. If you want to change the world, love others, open your house, and use your gifts Now, here's the thing. Peter says, whoever serves, serves as one by the strength that God supplies. And so here's the thing. When you serve others, when you love others, when you open open others into your home, it gets tiresome. It gets hard. And the reason that many people burn out is because they're trying to exert a gift that God hasn't given them, or they're trying to do it in their own strength. If you find the gift that God has given you, God will empower you to use it if you depend upon him to give you the strength you need. Listen, every, every weekend I get the privilege of preaching. Some sermons are better than others, okay? Let's just, I'm just going to be honest with you, right? Some you can sleep better in than others. I know that. But here's the thing. I can't just go online, grab one, and come in and preach it. That's called plagiarism. So every week I have to study, and here's the thing: I can't turn the sermon in late and take a D. So it's not like you know what? Hey, guys, I didn't get the sermon done this Sunday. Will y'all show up Monday, about seven o'clock in the evening, and I'll give it? I'll give it a whirl then. No, I mean nobody would show up, and you guys would be like, "Well, you're an idiot," and you would be right. And so every week, I have the privilege to get to study a sermon, get into God's Word so I can rightly divide God's Word and, and, and share, share a message uh, from God's Word. And hopefully it will help you and help others. And, and God's been doing some great things, in, even in spite of me. But here's what I'm trying to say. I get done. I preach my guts out. I'm, I'm serving you, trying to point you to Jesus. And, and you know what? I'm tired Sunday afternoon. Like, I'm worn slick out. But Monday morning, I cannot wait to get back in the study and do it all over again. You know why? Because it's my gift. It's my calling. Some of you, that's your calling. You work and work and work, and everybody says, Man, you're crazy. How can you do it? You're, You're serving in the strength God supplies. See, it's not so much about what, God, what you do for God, it's as much as it is what God does through you. And our effectiveness and longevity in serving others is not from our strength or our resources. It has to be found in his strength, his resources. It is so easy to be tired. It is so, it's so easy to get frustrated, discouraged, and burned out. Churches have a keen ability of seeing someone on fire for God and watching them burn out. Life is hard. Ministry coupled with life is tough, but we have to see that all of life is ministry that finds its strength in the power that God supplies. You want to make a difference in the world? Pray. Pray like it matters. You want to make a difference in the world? Love people. Open your home and use your gift. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified. If you just follow the logic of that verse, he's telling us that God's the one who gives us the ability to serve, God gives us the grace to serve, the word to speak, the strength to survive. And so since God does it all, to God be the glory for it all through Jesus Christ. See, without Jesus, you and I wouldn't have a snowball's chance in hell. It's all about the glory of God. Why why do I want to pray? Why do do I want to love? Why why do I want to care for people? I don't want to care for anybody. Why? Yes, I do. For the glory of God. See, why you do what you do is more important than what you do. You know, one thing that separates Christianity from almost every other religion is this laser-like focus on our hearts. God cares more about your heart than it is your action. And so if your service to God doesn't come out of a motive to glorify God, then it's not really obedience. It's probably sin. Jesus uses this in, in, in his Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You read that and you're like, What do you mean, Jesus? We do the good works, God gets the glory. What's that all about? Well, I think the best way to describe it is this Have you ever just went and ate somebody, ate somewhere really nice? Like, really nice. You ever gone like to to a really expensive restaurant. You know, when I was living in Sanford, I could give you examples for expensive restaurants until I came to Naples, and now I don't have very many examples. And so I'm just gonna give a fictitious nice restaurant, okay? Because nice is relative now here. And so let's say you go to a really nice restaurant and you ate the best meal of your life. Like Like from top to bottom, from soup literally to nuts. It was amazing. And you go to your server and you say, This was the most amazing meal I've ever ate in my life. It is life transformational. Thank you so much. Wow, thank you so much. That was an incredible meal. What's the server going to say? I didn't cook it. I just served it. The chef cooked it. I just brought it to you. The same is true with us. We don't cook it. We just serve it. We don't get the glory, he gets the glory. That's what makes a difference in the world. You know, many of us, we want the glory. We want the honor. We want the likes. We want the comments. We want the affirmation. And you say, well, not me, preacher. Well, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. No one serves with 100% pure motives, but we should have a desire to serve God for the glory of God. That's why in verse 11, he says, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. If you want to sustain ministry, you've got to make it about Jesus. When we serve like Jesus in the power of Jesus for the glory of Jesus, then that's how we sustain ministry, like Jesus we can make a difference in the world around us by living a normal, ordinary Christian life that knows that the end is near, we keep our heads, we pray hard, we love well, we welcome strangers, and we use our gifts to serve others. Peter says, live with the end in mind. Think about heaven, think about eternity, live every day as if it's your last. Let me end with this. In the 19th century, there was a famous British cricket player named C.T. Studd. With a name like Studd, he's gonna be good. Cricket, which I know many of you are cricketers, but cricket in the 19th century was the world's most popular sport. At the very height of C.T. Studd's career, He was a star player on the British national team. Stud could not shake the thought that his life was yielding him little eternal value. And so, as a Christian, he resigned the national team, left Britain, all the fame, all the money, all the notoriety, and went to China, then went to India and eventually the Congo where he died. It would have been like LeBron James having a press conference saying that he's taking his talents to Mongolia so he could share Jesus there. People came to C.T. Stud and they said, why would you do this? Why would you give up the fame? Why would you give up the notoriety? And here's what he said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, Then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Later he wrote a poem that said this: Only one life twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Do you want to make a difference in the world? It'll happen through your prayer. It'll happen through your care. There's no sacrifice you can make for him that is greater than the sacrifice he made for you. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. And Father, I ask that you would do a work through the preaching of your word that would cause people to want to live their life for you pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and let us sing. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church, go out and be the church, have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.